working through Acts chapter 15. I'd intended on covering all of Acts chapter 15 in one sitting, and we didn't make it. And then the next week, I began by talking about how sometimes you watch a movie and you don't make it all the way through it and you stop halfway through and you watch the second half the next night. It's not quite the same. Well, the same things happened to us again here in chapter 16. I intended last week to make it from the conversion of Lydia all the way through the end of chapter 16, and we didn't even get close to that. We stopped here just as Paul and Silas were thrown into the Philippian jail. And so we'll have to pick up there this morning, and hopefully it won't be like stopping a movie halfway through. Hopefully this will be continuous for you. As we turn this morning, once again, to Acts chapter 16, we'll begin in verse 25. As you're finding that, let me just kind of remind us all of what we talked about last week. This team of four missionaries, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they're now in Philippi, and they go down to this prayer meeting by the river, and they speak the Gospel to the ladies there. In particular, this lady Lydia is um, listening to the Gospel. We talked about the three-way, communi- or three-way co- cooperation that was taking place there. Paul was speaking the Gospel to Lydia. Lydia was making herself available and listening and paying attention, and God was working in Lydia's heart throughout that whole time. And so this three-way cooperation takes place. Lydia is converted. She's baptized. And then she engages in the ministry of hospitality. She opens her home to this team of missionaries. We talked last week about using our homes for ministry, thinking of our homes biblically, thinking of our homes in a a way that's different from the world thinks of their homes as a place to sleep and rest and change clothes and eat, but instead thinking of our homes as ministry centers, as places to do ministry from, ministry to lost people and ministry to fellow believers in Christ. And so Lydia engages in this ministry of hospitality here. And then this uh, slave girl comes along, the demon-possessed slave girl. and She's following Paul and them around and she's sort of mocking them. She's, uh, the demon is saying these things. They're all true things. But then Paul casts the demon out of Lydia. And we took that last week and we applied it to our lives today. And we saw how Scripture teaches us that when someone's teaching directly contradicts a clear message of Scripture, then we are to not pick and choose what we want to believe among what they're saying, but instead we are to disregard all of the message and all of the messenger. We turn to Galatians chapter 1, and that was a key text for us to see how Paul tells us there that if anybody comes preaching a different gospel, one that contradicts the clear teachings of Scripture, you are to disregard everything that they say. And so Paul casts out the demon, not because the demon's telling so many lies, but because the demon can't be trusted. So he casts out the demon and then... The business people that own her get rather upset about that. They've lost their source of income, so they whip up this crowd and they grab Paul and Silas and they beat them and throw them in jail, and that's where we stopped last time. So this morning we'll pick up in verse 25, and we will make it through the end of chapter 16 today. Let's begin this morning by reading, beginning from verse 25, we'll read through the end of chapter 16. Verse 25, this is a familiar story to us all, the Philippian jailer. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and great earthquakes, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. 
Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And, they, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pause here, and we'll ask God to anoint this time of preaching His Word. Father, we have opened Your holy Word. We have turned to You. You are our only source of life. Your words our life to us. And so we ask that You would impart Your life to us as we preach and hear Your words. We pray that Your Spirit would be active among us. And I pray that this would be done for the glory of Your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that I pray. Amen. So last time we stopped as Paul and Silas have been beat up and thrown into prison. They've had the stocks put around them which makes it impossible for them to be comfortable, to lie down. Uh, in addition to that, they've, they've been beaten with rods, and so lying down on their back is probably not very comfortable to say the least right now. So they can't get comfortable and sleep, which is why we find them awake at midnight singing. And by the way, some of us here also have trouble sleeping through the night. I hear lots of folks talk about how few hours of sleep they get in the night, and they wake up regularly during the night and have um, time on their hands. And maybe may I just point out the obvious to us. Um, are you spending those hours in the night as Paul and Silas spent their hours in the night? Um, no better way is there to spend those hours in the night in which sleep escapes us than how we see Paul and Silas spending these midnight hours. They are singing and they are praying and they are worshiping. No better way to spend your nighttime hours as well. So here's Paul and Silas singing and praying in the middle of the night. Having been beaten, their feet and hands are shackled and chained. They're uncomfortable, in pain, unjust, and yet they are singing and worshiping God. By the way, this, this also, if you notice, this ends the first of, of Acts. Switch back to, not, not from we and us pronouns, he switched back to they and them pronouns, which tells us that Luke and probably Timothy were not also beaten and thrown into prison as Paul and Silas were. We don't know why only Paul and Silas were, but Luke is now narrating events for which he was not directly a part of. So Paul and Silas are in, in jail praying and singing hymns to God, um, worshiping God in the middle of the night. You know, God has given to us, to mankind, one of the most tremendous gifts in the gift of music. I don't know if you often meditate on the gift of music, but it is a tremendous gift that God has given to all mankind. You may play an instrument, you may sing, or you may not, and it doesn't matter. The gift of music is still a gift that God has given to you. 
music speaks to your heart in a way that nothing else does. Um, as uh, sometimes we witness in church, the music will sometimes move us uh, in ways that spoken words don't move us. Because music speaks to our heart in a powerful way. You know, I think that what music often does for us is it takes the truth that our minds know and it moves it into our emotions. It takes what's in our mind and moves it into our heart, in other words. Which is, by the way, how it is that Christians overcome emotional adversity. The Bible teaches us that this is how Christians overcome emotional adversity is by meditating in their minds on the truth of God. Philippians 4, 6-8 through 8 teaches us this. Romans 12, 2, many other places teach us that that's how the Christian overcomes emotional adversity is by focusing their mind on the truth of God. However, sometimes that's easier said than done. Have you ever had difficulty feeling the truth that your mind knows? Have you ever had difficulty in the sense that your mind knows the reality of God? He is the Creator. He loves you. He gives for you. You are righteous in Christ, and yet your emotions don't feel that. Have you ever noticed how sometimes there's a difference between what we know and what we feel? Music is a powerful way of moving what we know into the realm of what we feel. And it finds resonance there. And it finds... Uh, accommodation. It finds a place to live in our heart. The truth of our mind can find a place in our heart by way of music. Let me illustrate this to you. Can, can anybody remember what I preached three weeks ago? Doubt it, right? Probably nobody here remembers what I preached three weeks ago. Probably most of us don't remember what I preached last week. However, does anybody here remember the message of Amazing Grace? Does anybody here remember the message of Just As I Am? or I Surrender All, or Wonderful Words of Life like we just sang, or any of the hundreds of, of that we sing by way of Christian music. You see, those have found lodging in your hearts in a way that the spoken word has not. That is the power of music. It's the power to move what we know to be true in our minds into the, to the realm of emotion so that we then burst forth in emotional worship. Music does that for us in a powerful way. Which is, by the way, one reason that it's so important that what we sing be scripturally truthful and scripturally accurate. You know, so much of what we call Christian music today is at best theologically weak. At worst, it's just plain theologically wrong. So much. I don't, I don't want to go into any examples. We don't have time for that. But so much of what we sing today in the way, by way of Christian music, so much of what you hear on the radio by way of Christian music is just plain biblically deficient. And as we sing and as we listen to, that being, to those scriptural errors being sung, they are finding lodging in our hearts when they shouldn't. You know, it was Charles Wesley who said um, that the most powerful tool to a Christian outside of the Bible is the hymn book. Is the good hymn book. Because in this, the truth of what's in here finds its way into our hearts. We as good evangelicals, aren't we, we're quick to say this is our only authority, right? And we're right to say that. However, in practice, let me submit to you that probably what's in here has more to do with what you believe than what's in here. 
Because what's in here has found lodging in your heart. And that's a good thing as long as what's in here agrees with what's in here. Sometimes it doesn't. And so we as Christians must be guarded against that. Because what we sing will be what we believe. It was R.W. Dale that wrote centuries ago. He said, let me write the music and the hymns of the church, and I don't care who writes its theology. Because he understood what the Christians sing will be what the Christian believes. Make sure that the music of your worship is scripturally accurate and precise. And so we see that Paul and Barnabas are engaging in singing and praying. They're worshiping God. But also look at the end of that verse. And the prisoners were listening to them. Here we see another example of the value of public worship. Non-believers watching believers worship in a public way. It is tremendously important when non-believers see believers worshiping. It's very effective. Kind of like what we did this past summer at Gibsonville Town Squares. We met there every Sunday night in a public venue in order to publicly worship God. That is very important for unbelievers to see believers worshiping in that way. That can have a tremendous impact on non-believers. I mentioned just a moment ago something Charles Wesley wrote uh, centuries ago, but Charles Wesley, as you know, also had a brother named John Wesley who was a very famous Christian. And probably most of us are aware, at least somewhat, of John Wesley's conversion. But you may not be aware of the events that led up to John Wesley's conversion. It all began in 1735 when John Wesley was still a pagan unbeliever and he was aboard a tiny vessel crossing the Atlantic. And this vessel entered into a dramatic storm. The mainsail had ripped in half, the mast was broken, and this vessel was in serious trouble. Later on, Wesley would write that everybody on the ship was in a panic except for 12 German Christians called Moravian Christians. You've heard me talk about Moravian Christians before. 12 Moravian Christians who did not seem worried in the slightest, yet they were praying and singing in the midst of the storm. Wesley would go on to write that that had a profound effect on him to watch believers worshiping in genuine worship in the midst of this terrible storm. Same thing we kind of see happening here. Paul and Silas are worshiping. Non-believers are watching them worship and it's having a profound effect on them. Then verse 26, Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's bonds were unfastened. So there's this earthquake and bonds are loosened through the shaking of this earthquake. I don't know about you, but I see a metaphor in this. I see a parallel. And the parallel, the metaphor that I see, is a metaphor for spiritual revival. There's a shaking, and the shaking results in the loosening of bonds. And that's often how described in God's Word. As a shaking. For example, Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. If you'll put it on the screen, brother, I did skip a a scripture before that one, so you have to skip over it. Haggai 2, 7 tells us that God says, I will shake the nations. And oftentimes, Scripture describes revival as a shaking of people. And in fact, if we were to read the accounts of all of the Great Awakenings, all of the revivals that have taken place here in our country and worldwide, we find in the accounts of those revivals many consistencies. One of the consistencies we find is that oftentimes it describes people trembling, people shaking. In fact, you're familiar with the Quakers? That's where they got their name, because they quaked. And so it describes very consistently people trembling 
as they are receiving the truth in a powerful, powerful way. Now, you can believe that or disbelieve it, but the fact remains that it's, that's described in almost every great awakening or every great revival. This shaking that goes on, a spiritual shaking that literally, for many people, results in a physical shaking. And so there's this earthquake that shakes, and then the bonds of the, the bondage of the prison are, is loosed, reminiscent of, of course, the bondage of sin that's, that's loosed as we receive the truth of God. Word. So this, this earthquake comes in verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. As you are probably aware in these days, a Roman jailer, if he allowed prisoners to escape, then whatever sentence the prisoners were serving, he then had to serve out that sentence. If, if the prisoners he was guarding were serving a 10-year sentence, he finished out their 10 years for them. Later on, or I'm sorry, earlier in chapter 12. Remember chapter 12 when Peter was released from prison by the angel? Remember what Herod did? He killed the guards that were supposed to be guarding Peter. So that was, that was the rule of the day, the law of the day, that if a, a jailer allowed to escape, he served out whatever sentence they were serving. Now Paul and Silas haven't been sentenced to anything, but probably some of the other prisoners in the prison were serving some pretty harsh sentences. Perhaps some of them were under sentence of death. Perhaps some of them were sentenced to be crucified. And so this jailer thinks anything's better than that. Even self-murder is better than that. You see how his life has come to this crisis point. He thinks that, that suicide is a better option because he supposes that everybody has left. But look at verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. We're not told why the prisoners remain. Probably they were listening to Paul's message and they too have been changed. And they sensed that they shouldn't leave but stay. But I think that also something else going on here is probably the fact that, that Paul has somehow assumed the role of leadership among the prisoners. He's been, sort of become recognized as a leader among them. I say that because this is a pattern for Paul. Later on in chapter 27, Paul's going to be on a ship, and the ship is full of prisoners. He's one of them. And the ship enters into a storm. The sails are torn, the masts are broken, the ship is adrift for many, many days. And then the ship is, the ship is about to run aground, and the Roman guards on the ship are going to kill all the prisoners because they assume that once they run aground, they're not going to be able to keep the prisoners there. Paul, once again, has assumed leadership, and he tells the Roman guards, we're not going to leave, we're going to stay, don't kill them. And they don't. So Paul probably has assumed some kind of a leadership role among the prisoners here. So he says, don't do yourself any harm, we're all here. And the jailer was cut to his heart. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. There's another trembling. Verse 30, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? The most wonderful question that I think that I could be asked, I've only been asked that question a few times maybe. Wonderful question to be asked. What must I do to be saved. Now, does the jailer know the answer to that question? I submit that he probably does. He has probably heard Paul singing the answer to that question. He's probably heard Paul's testimony because Paul has been there for several days preaching on the streets. He's probably heard the slave girl and what happened with her. So I submit that Paul or the jailer probably knows the answer to that question. However, he's not yet been to the point that he was ready to receive that answer. It took this crisis of his life 
This crisis in which one moment his life was going along just fine, the next moment self-murder was his best option. It took that crisis to bring him to a point at which he's ready to listen and now receive this message. He has been brought to this point through this crisis. He's watched Paul and Silas worship God and suffer with dignity, but not just dignity, with spiritual dignity with spiritual trust and faith. He's watched them worship and suffer in this way, and this has opened his heart to receive the Gospel. If I may, I'd like to read just a brief story to you from a book called The Costly Call, Modern Day Stories of Muslims Who Found Jesus. I read this book a few years ago, and it is a fantastic read. Let me encourage you to to pick this up and read. I want to read just a a short section um, from the story of someone named Abul. The story is a coll- this book is a collection, as the title says, of Muslims who have come to faith in Jesus Christ in radical ways. And they have radical stories to tell. So one of these is a, is a fellow by the name of Abul who was from Bangladesh. Let me just read. I'll pick up about halfway through the story. Abul writes this, Although the constitution of Bangladesh promises freedom of religion, Cases of government persecution of non-Islamic faiths are well documented and increasing in intensity. While serving in a local government position in Bangladesh, I in fact watched as a Bengali man, Abraham, was sentenced to death. Abraham had denounced Islam and accepted Christ as his Savior, a crime worthy of execution according to the laws of Islam. Intrigued by the man's humility and love for Christ, I visited Abraham in his prison cell two days prior to his execution. Steadfast in his newfound faith, Abraham refused to recant his beliefs and continued to be at peace about his approaching death. I asked him, why do you not simply denounce this Jesus Christ? Abraham's reply shocked me. I cannot denounce Christ because He would never denounce me. Concerned for Abraham, I again urged him, believe what you will, but say that Christ is not God and save your life. In a meek, low whisper, Abraham replied, I would not commit a lie against any man. I can never commit a lie against the Son of God who gave His life for me. He gave His life for me. I count it joy to die for Him. See a familiar theme there? James 1-2. I count it joy to die for Him. I wept as Abraham shared his faith with me, a devout Muslim. Two days later, the council gave Abraham one more chance to renounce Christ, but he refused. For his defiance, he was scourged with chains. One of the chains ultimately wrapped around his head, crushing his skull. Abraham never fought back. Instead, he prayed to Jesus, asking for strength to persevere. He seemed not to even feel the pain. He was at total peace. Watching in utter amazement, and here it is, watching in utter utter amazement, I knew that at that very moment, I must seek out this Christ that Abraham knew. You see how Abul, just like the Philippian jailer, has watched Christians suffer for Christ, trusting Christ through it, worshiping Christ, And this has moved Abul and the Philippian jailer to now receive a message that he had rejected prior to this. Abul, just as Paul and Silas were doing, they were filling up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. 
from Colossians 1. They were filling up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ so that Abul could see it, so that the Philippian jailer could see it, so that they could be moved to receive this message. What must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. What must you do? There's nothing you must do. What must be done for your salvation has been done on your behalf. You simply need to believe and surrender. And you need to uh, submit and in faith receive what has already been done on your behalf. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And these days, the, the jailers would typically live above the prison. So probably what's happened is he's gone and gotten Paul and taken him upstairs to where his wife and, and family is if he has a family. And Paul has also preached the Gospel to he and his family. This is why that we read in verse 31, you'll be saved, you and your household. His household wasn't saved by way of his belief. They were saved in the same way that he was saved because Paul and Silas preached the Gospel to them as well. And they believed. In verse 33, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into his house. Brought them up into his house. And set food before them. So here we see the jailer and his family working out their newfound salvation. Working out their newfound faith. Evidencing their faith in works. They lovingly care for Paul. Dress his wounds. Feed him. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Then verse 35, But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported those words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. So, there was never a case against Paul and Silas. They didn't do anything wrong. They cast out a demon. And so, having no case against them, they didn't intend to bring them to trial or anything like that. They just wanted to beat them up, put them in prison. Now they're done with that. They just wanted them to get out of town. They want to kick them out of jail. But now Paul will have none of this. Verse 36, the jailer comes and tells them. Then verse 37, Paul said to them, Beaten us publicly, uncondemned men, who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? So, as you probably are aware, it was illegal to punish a Roman citizen without a proper trial. If you weren't a Roman citizen, they could do whatever they wanted to, to you. It didn't, didn't much matter. But if you were a Roman citizen, it was illegal to punish you without a trial, which is what they've done here. By the way, you see once again the, the tremendous benefit of citizenship in the world in which Paul lived. To be a citizen of Rome meant that you had rights the right, among other things, to a fair trial. To be not a citizen of Rome meant you had no rights. What a difference between citizenship and non-citizenship. That was the world Paul lived in. Which is one reason why Paul and other New Testament writers would speak so often and so powerfully of the benefits of citizenship in heaven, of our citizenship in another kingdom. Because the people that they wrote to, that really meant something to them, even more than it means to us today in our, in our world, citizenship doesn't mean nearly as much today as it did in Paul's world. And so it was a powerful metaphor for Paul, the citizenship in heaven. And so he says, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us in prison, and now they want to throw us out secretly. No, let them come themselves and take us out. So, what are we to think of this? 
it seems in one sense that Paul is sort of now um, sort of basking in this. You know, hey, let me just let you know, we're Roman citizens. It appears as though Silas was a Roman citizen too. We know Paul was a Roman citizen. And so Paul sort of brings this information out. Now that you want to get rid of us secretly, now that you want to sort of shuffle us out of town under cover of darkness maybe, now we're going to bring this, this other information out and we are not going to go quietly. We want you to come and we want you to grovel and we want to, you to apologize to us and we want to be vindicated for this. In a, in a sense, that seems to us rather self-serving, doesn't it? that Paul would sort of use this information like he's using it. But let's think through this carefully, and I think that we'll see a different picture about this. Paul is a Roman citizen, illegal to beat him and throw him in in jail without a trial, which they did. Was Paul a Roman citizen when they beat him? Of course he was, right? So why didn't he say something then? I mean, wouldn't it have made sense to say something then and avoid the beating? And so why does he bring it out now? And I think the only answer that we come to is this. When Paul was being beaten and imprisoned unjustly, he was suffering for Christ. And he's more than happy to do that. That brings him joy. Now, as Paul brings this information out, this is not about Paul saving himself from suffering now. This is about something else. If the magistrates shuffled him out of town quietly... Paul's not thinking about restoring his honor or his good name. What he's thinking about are the fledgling baby believers that he's leaving behind. And if they shuffle Paul and Silas out of town quietly like this, then these baby believers, just a few days old in their faith, probably would have struggled with this. These men who brought this message to us were scoundrels, lawbreakers, beaten up, thrown into prison. Shuffled out of town under cover of night. We hadn't seen them. We hadn't heard from them. They came and brought us this. And yet, we believed it, but we hadn't heard from them since then. Paul's concern is not for his honor. Paul's concern is not to make the magistrates grovel. Paul does not want to leave behind doubt in the new believers. He doesn't want them to doubt the character of the people who have brought the Gospel to them. He doesn't want them to doubt the Gospel. And so, it's important to Paul that these new believers see that he suffered unjustly. If Paul suffered justly, like Peter says, if you do wrong and are beaten for it, then that's nothing. Paul wants them to see that he has suffered unjustly. Nothing to do with his honor. Nothing to do with sort of getting back at these magistrates. has everything to do with what he's leaving behind. This is, by the way, the same reason that Paul came back into Lystra after he was stoned and left for dead. So that the Lystra believers would see him and see that he has been vindicated by God. And so, this is why he says this. They're not going to throw us out secretly. Verse 38, the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens for good reason. So they came out and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And then verse 40, here's the reason why Paul did all of that. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So there's chapter 16. What I want to do is take just a moment and just see the big picture of what we've seen for the last two messages. 
What Luke is showing us is three pictures of dramatic conversion. Three pictures of the Gospel impacting people's lives of completely different situations, completely different backgrounds. And yet it's the same Gospel of grace that transforms them. Let's work backwards. Let's start with the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer is living a life that, that probably is a decent life. But he has seen the worst of life, hasn't he? He's seen the worst of life on the giving end of it. Because he's handled murderers, he's handled criminals, the worst society has to offer. He's been in a lot of contact with those sorts of people. So he's seen a lot of evil in life. But he's not one of those people. He's this Philippian jailer. Probably an honest, upstanding man. A man whose life at one moment was going along just fine. At another moment, he has everything torn out from under him when this earthquake comes and he thinks his life is over. And so he goes from having a good normal life to having nothing to having everything. The Philippian jailer is a dramatic example of conversion for us. For someone who feels as though they're sort of making their own way and doing fine through life, well, along comes something and rips, rips all the supports out from under them and then they're ready to receive the Gospel. That's the Philippian jailer. Now go backwards to the slave girl. What a tragic story. The slave girl who has been exploited by everyone in her whole life. She's owned by other people who exploit her physically, probably exploit her sexually. They definitely are exploiting her spiritually. And she's also possessed by these demons who also have her in bondage. She's in double bondage. She has seen the worst of life from all angles and she's been on the receiving end of all of it. Furthermore, every day she has to let the, the citizens of Philippi exploit her even more. Her life is tragic. Her life is a life seeing life at its worst and being the end of it. And here comes the Gospel and sets her free from her spiritual bondage to demons. She's still in bondage to, the, to her owners. But along comes the Gospel to someone who has nothing else good in her life. And she connects. It resonates with her. And then back to Lydia. Now Lydia, by contrast, was different from the jailer and different from the slave girl. Because Lydia was a person of standing. She was a business person. She was probably a person of property. She probably had a nice house, probably wore nice clothes. She was respected, listened to. She held standing in the society, in the culture. And yet, all of that didn't matter because in Lydia's life, there was still something very, very important that was missing. We know that because she goes down to the river every Saturday, seeking what she's missing. Gathering with these other women who are there to pray and pray and seek the uh, Jewish God. Seeking what she was missing in her life. And so, all of her business, all of her wealth, all of her status was ultimately doing her no good. Three people from three different walks of life, three different situations, and yet all of them are living an empty life. And it is only the Gospel of Christ that comes in. It meets all three of those people in different places. And then notice how they all show evidence of their, of their salvation. 
Lydia shows evidence of her salvation. She's baptized and then she engages in the ministry of hospitality. The evidence of the slave girl's salvation is obvious as the demon is cast out. And then the Philippian jailer evidences his salvation as he and his family take Paul and they love them and care for them, bandage up their wounds and feed them. Three dramatic stories of salvation from people of all different walks of life. This is, I think, a reminder for us. The folks, the Gospel is the only answer. It doesn't matter where you are in life. It doesn't matter if you are a have or a have not. It doesn't matter if you are a, a, a has been. It doesn't matter what you have in life or what you don't have. The Gospel is the only answer for what you're missing. As Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 tells us, God has put eternity in our hearts. He has created us for Him. And it doesn't matter what we accumulate outside of that. We were made for Christ. We were made to worship Him. We were made to know Him. And outside of that, nothing in this life will satisfy. Outside of receiving the Gospel as the Philippian jailer receives it, believe is all. The atonement has been completed. The righteousness of God is available to you in exchange for your sin. And that righteousness covers you like a complete blanket completely covering up all of your unrighteousness so that all that God sees and knows of you is the righteousness of Christ. Outside of that, nothing in life fulfills, nothing in life makes sense.